When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. How's it going, Dan? I'm getting very sick of matzah. How about you, Leslie? Um, I'm good. I took a couple days off this week to do some uh, fixer-upper stuff at my mom's house. It's always really satisfying. Well, nice you are looking it. you are looking rejuvenated, and you have a new haircut, which I assume that all of the listeners are appreciating. Yes, the uh, big pandemic Jufro is officially gone. May it not rest in peace. <laughs> Woof. <laughs> Um, anyway, this is our 165th episode. We've got a wide-ranging interview with Natasha Leone coming up about season two of Russian Doll, and so much more to get to. But uh, before we do, a special programming announcement, Dan. Lots of fun coming up. Yeah, stay tuned on Tuesday, April 25th, for our second special Showrunner Spotlight standalone episode, as we will be breaking down the series finale of FX comedy Better Things, with an hour-plus-long interview with the great Pamela Adlon. Dan, it is a fantastic conversation that, spoiler alert, includes both Pam and I trying unsuccessfully to get you to sing in Yiddish, but uh, she does <sighs> sing. She she sings, she speaks Yiddish, she does just about everything. I, yeah. I'm going to say, when you say wide-ranging, it is it is about everything. It is, you know, she, she talks about everything. She talks about ranging. baseball cards, which is fun for me. <laughs> She talks about baseball cards. She talks about better things. She talks about the strange technical issues that we were having in the middle of the podcast. But the, <laughs> conversa- but the conversation was truly so much fun that there was really no point in attempting to cut that out. So if you've ever wanted to hear Pamela Adlon attempting to tell stories around mysterious technical glitches while uh, while apologizing to our wonderful, wonderful producer, Matt Whitehurst, Truly, it is. It is a top-notch interview. And by technical glitches, it just means she was her text messages were blowing up, so you can kind of hear, and it, it, it does feel like a storyline straight out of Better Things. So yes, that's she coming is, she, Tuesday. She, she's getting te- she's getting texts. She's getting uh, she's getting calls to clean her room. She's getting calls about the next thing she has to go to, and it's just generally freewheeling and fun for well over an hour. Uh, that will be up after the episode airs on the West Coast, so that would be 11 Pacific. Uh, if, however, you're not the kind of person who listens to podcasts at 1 in the morning, it will be up the next morning as well, and that's when our regular Hollywood Reporter story embedding the podcast will come up. We'll remind you frequently on the Twitters and various social messaging platforms. And later in this episode, too. Yeah. Exactly, and later in this episode. So yeah, we'll constantly remind you, because um, it's a really, really great episode, and we're very proud of it. 
Absolutely. If you love the show, you'll love the interview. If you've never seen the show, you're going to love the interview just the same. So don't miss it. Coming Tuesday night. But as people have mentioned, also on the Twitters, because, you know, where else do we live these days? This was kind of a busy week for, for television, or at least there were a few rather large stories touching on several of our very, very favorite recurring issues, conundrums, puzzlements, evolutions in the industry. So yeah, we should probably get down to business. I see what you did there. Let's lead off this week with the top headlines. Number one. Starting with the new series order front, in what may be the fastest script to series order, AMC is officially moving forward with Straight Man, a dramedy starring Bob Odenkirk, which marks his third show for the basic cable network. Elsewhere, Idris Elba will star in and produce the dramatic thriller Hijack for Apple, marking his first series with the streamer as part of his new first look deal there. Showtime is teaming with Matt Bomer for a limited series called Fellow Travelers that is set in McCarthy-era Washington. Netflix is teaming with exec producers Mike Judge and Greg Daniels for an animated adaptation of the popular card game Exploding Kittens. Super fun one there, Dan. And for soap opera fans, Bo and Hope are coming back for Peacock's second Days of Our Lives miniseries. So if you are fans of Bo and Hope, which I was in, let's see, what was that? elementary school during the LAUSD strike, they're coming back on Peacock. I'm still scratching my head a tiny bit about the straight man thing because it that's a really, really fast yeah. transition from two weeks ago announcing one thing and, hey, what the hell, we're going to series. Yeah, I mean, it's they either had to see a script or something changed or either it was the announcement to kind of feel out an audience and then just say, yeah, we're doing this anyway and give him an, you know, give Bob Odenkirk a little extra love, which he could always use. And obviously he is a face of AMC and they are very wise to keep that going, to keep him on the network. Continuing with headlines in renewals this week, Netflix has picked up one of my favorite shows, Big Mouth, for yet another season and the promising spinoff Human Resources. Also for another season, that will be the seventh for Big Mouth and the second for Human Resources. And I don't really care nearly as much about this, but it is still a fact. The talk will return for a 13th season on CBS. And in controversy, Laker legend Jerry West, the face of the NBA logo, or the not-so-much face, but the silhouette of the NBA logo, is demanding a retraction from HBO over his depiction in the cable network's drama Winning Time. This show is obviously not so much of a slam dunk with Laker fellow <laughs> Laker Hall of Famer Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who also criticized the series for its, quote, crude stick figure characters. Dan, we we had this showrunner on the on the podcast, and we know that he did make efforts to to attempt to contact the actual people that he's portraying in the show, including Magic and Kareem, and was and they had no interest participating. And and for the most part, it seems like everyone is kind of latching on to the depiction of Jerry West. And look, what do you what are you going to say? I did not know Jerry West in 1979. If Jerry West was not somebody who <laughs> was not somebody who drank through temper tantrums and periodically threw his NBA Finals MVP trophy through glass windows, then he wasn't those things. And if he wasn't those things, then that's not a particularly good <laughs> depiction of him. Uh, later in the show, I'm going to at least touch on the Apple TV Plus uh, They Call Me Magic documentary about Magic Johnson. And the first episode of that is basically the first season of Winning Time. And certainly as it comes to Magic Johnson and the depiction of his, um, I don't know, relationship with teammates and his first season in the NBA and all of that, 
the documentary and the TV series basically are bordering on identical. So if it turns out that basically the lim- the uh, I don't know, the big leaps, creatively speaking, were taken when it came to making Jerry West into a rageaholic and everything else was accurate. I can understand certainly why Jerry West would be unhappy with that. Um, our occasional colleague, Kareem's column, well, I certainly understand why he feels the way he does. It, it's a little bit strange. He sort of puts everything on Adam McKay and links it to his dislike of Don't Look Up. And while I also disliked Don't Look Up, it does sort of ignore the fact that Adam McKay directed one episode of this TV show, whereas there's a whole team of producers, writers, etc., who are not, in fact, Adam McKay. It's easy to point to Adam McKay and go, this is either all your fault or all your brilliance, however you happen to feel. But come on, Kareem well, this knows is from that. his production company. So he was the steward of, of, of this show, almost as much as, as uh, Max Bornstein, the showrunner, who, by the way, you can listen to our interview with him dating back to episode 158 from March of this year. I'm just saying, though, that as a former staff writer on Veronica Mars, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar knows the way that TV shows are made and knows better. But anywho, uh, yeah, you know, look, if this is not if this is not in any way like Jerry West was, I understand why Jerry West would be annoyed. (laughs) Continuing unrelated on casting front. Uh, Freeform's breakout Cruel Summer is officially now becoming an anthology for the second season. Uh, the new cast will include private practice veterans Katie Strickland, Paul Edelstein, and Griffin Gluck, and a new showrunner. It will return at some point this year. On the network pilot front, Ramon Rodriguez and Erica Christensen will star in ABC's Will Trent drama based on the book series of the same name. And in massive news on the streaming front... CNN Plus will be shutting down April 30th. That's less than a month after its debut. Warner Media spent $300 million on its launch and planned to spend hundreds of millions more in the coming months and years on the service and its content. Uh, Incoming CEO and former TV's top five guest, Chris Licht, informed staff of the news this week. You know, in a larger sense, you know, it's not surprising. You know, we know that that the launch was was a baby of the Warner Media executive regime. Those people are gone. It is now the War- Warner Brothers Discovery, overseen by David Zosloff, who preferred that the service never launch in the first place. Basically, what we're seeing here is everything that we've kind of been talking about on the podcast for the last, I don't know, year, two years, two and a half years. He wants a big, broad streamer consolidation. So you can expect HBO Max to to become the home of CNN content at some point. I'm sure you will have integration here with Discovery Plus as well. It's basically what we've seen. You know, you're seeing Disney. We talked about it on last week's episode with Dancing with the Stars moving exclusively from ABC to Disney Plus. They're trying to broaden out that service. It's just a matter of time before all these streamers that have all these other niche services become one giant place. And if you look at the memo that and the remarks that came from CNN and Warner Brothers Discovery executives, it's basically like they want a service that has entertainment, nonfiction, which is Discovery Plus, sports. Obviously, you know, you're they're making all these sports rights deal and news. That's CNN. So you know, our our heart uh, goes out to all the CNN Plus staffers who were affected by this. But yeah, this is honestly not really surprising. The timetable is the part that's surprising. I mean, the not really. You, know, I, you you aren't surprised that they had it open for a month, decided to close it. That's the David Zaslav did not want this service to launch. 
Warner Media executives wanted this to launch. So they went ahead with this anyway. And once Zaz got in there, pulled this thing as, as quick as he could do. If, if you look at a lot of the media titans who kind of cover the, the news space and the cable news space, that's exactly what was anticipated. You know, there was no communication between those two regimes about the about CNN plus. So they went ahead with it. And then here it is. This is, you know, it, it, it's basically what we're saying is at some point, and we'll talk so much more about this in, you know, our next segment, but at some point, all these services have to continue to bulk up to, to be able to compete, not just on a, on a domestic platform, but internationally speaking as well. So, and how do you do that? You appeal to all viewers. You, you become a something for everything service, right? You look at, you know, the model that Netflix set years ago. It's like, we want to have something for everyone, which of course now that's being, you know, that that's obviously under the microscope. We'll talk about that next, but this is, you know, HBO Max is going to become a big, broad service to, to, you know, and, you know, everyone wants scale right now. That's, that's what this, the whole Warner, Warner Media Discovery merger was about. That's what the, the Fox Disney merger was about. You want scale and you want IP. So am I surprised that it shut down a month after launching? Not really. I'm just surprised that no one had sufficient respect for the optics of it that's that's the part that surprises me is that they allowed it to look like a gigantic debacle which of course it is there's no arguing with that because they also allowed for multiple weeks of oops no one's actually watching cnn plus stories before pulling it whereas the alternative was exactly what you just said which is HBO Max is our priority. We have this resource. It's much more valuable to us as a part of this much larger resource. That's what we're doing with this. Ding, 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 ding. And that makes total sense to me. It's the allowing it to look like the utter fiasco that it clearly was. I mean, this will now become a punchline. Whether it's going to become more or less of a punchline than Quibi, it lasted less time than Quibi. And yes, I don't know why I'm saying Quibi as opposed to Quibi, but whatever. Um, so yeah, that that's where it gets to me. It's allowing it to become a punchline when the alternative is to simply say, look, this is of much more value to us if it is part of HBO Max because HBO Max is of more importance to us going forward. And I don't think anyone questions that. And HBO Max continues to be rather tremendously positioned because if consolidation is what's coming everywhere, obviously they can add as much CNN plus whatever as they can or want to. They can add as much Discovery plus as they want to. They've got all of these resources that they can take advantage of, which some of the other competitors do. You know, obviously we've talked over and over again about when it's going to happen that discover that Disney Plus becomes the thing and Hulu becomes a tab on Disney Plus and ESPN Plus becomes a tab on Disney Plus because having it under an umbrella is simply better business. So, so basically yeah. the cable model. <laughs> A hundred percent the cable model. And we're and in our next segment, we're going to talk extensively about the backward reinvention of the wheel that's going on in a different streamer. Um, and yeah, that's I mean, that's what everyone is doing is everyone is going backward, going forward by going backward. And it's the thing that we always knew was going to happen because asking customers to keep subscribing to one service after another, it's not good to your customer base asking your customers to subscribe to, say, four services that have everything you could ever want, that's much more convenient to your base. So it's the thing we've talked over and over again is that all anyone wants to do is be one of those 
four or five services still standing after the consolidation. No one wants to be the thing that's absorbed. But unfortunately, we can't all be winners. Some things have to get absorbed. Yeah, they call it the streaming wars for a reason, Dan. They do. And we call it that a lot, like really on a weekly basis. Yep. Or daily basis, too. Well, up next, CNN wasn't the only streamer to have a no good, very bad week. Number two. Netflix, following its first quarter earnings this week, lost more than $54 billion, or 35% of its market value, after reporting its very first subscriber lost 200,000 subscribers in more than a decade, Dan. All told, the streamer lost 700,000 subscribers after pulling out of Russia over the invasion of Ukraine. Not accounting for the losses in Russia, the streamer would have ended the quarter with, at, with an addition of 500,000 new subscribers in the first quarter. And Dan, there's more bad news coming. The second quarter forecast, streaming giants predicting it will lose another 2 million subscribers. This has obviously sent the entire industry into a frenzy. So, I mean, I don't know how else to put it, but it's, it's you know, the CNN, you know, it, it's you got the CNN plus apocalypse, the Netflix apocalypse, like insert your, your Netflix streaming pun here. And to be clear, CNN Plus is going out of business. Netflix is not going out of business. But if anyone enjoys looking at stock numbers, the the drop off for Netflix stock, which basically looks like the White Cliffs of Dover, I mean, it was genuine. It, it wasn't hilarious because people will have lost a lot of money and presumably down the road, maybe people would lose jobs. And we don't like to make jokes about that. But goodness gracious, the I mean, the drop of Netflix stock was yeah, it's, precipitous. It, it's the second biggest drop in the, in the streamer's history. And, and if you want a good case study, hedge fund titan Bill Ackman, who bought $1.1 in Netflix stock in January, sold his entire stake in the company this week for a major loss. I am not going to feel pity for him, probably, but... Uh, yeah. So where do we want to start with the news and what it means and what Netflix is going to do so that we're not having this exact same conversation again next quarter? Well, I mean, we're going to have the same conversation again next quarter. But in terms of what they're going to do um, in the post earnings uh, recorded conversation, co-CEO Reed Hastings revealed that Netflix will explore launching an ad supported tier over the next, quote, year or two. Uh, marking that marks a massive reversal for the company, which uh, you know had always been adamant that they will never feature advertising on its service. Um, additionally, Netflix plans to further crack down on password sharing, with plans to try to monetize those and look at subscribers who have uh, who share their passwords with multiple out, uh, account, multiple people who live outside their household for a couple of bucks a month. That's basically trying to bring in revenue from people, something that people are already doing. Of its 222 million paid subscribers, Netflix had more than 100 million accounts are being shared with users outside of paying households, with 30 million shared accounts happening in the U.S. and Canada region alone. So if you add, figure if it's like three bucks or five bucks or whatever, you know, the test program that, the, that they're looking at is, that's a lot of money that they could add, you know, to, to that balance sheet alone. And those are just the first thing, and then, you know, the first two things. And then you've got, you know, the, the Netflix chief financial officer also revealed a plan to, quote, pull back on some of its content spending over the next two years in a move to increase revenue growth. The plan still, you know, their content spending is still $20 billion annually, if not more. And the conversations on the interwebs regarding why all of this had taken place, they ranged from, let's just say, cogent, correct, and analytical 
to Elon Musk saying that Netflix programming had become too woke. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, so there are the people who are correct, and then there's Elon Musk. Sorry, Elon Musk, no offense. If you want to buy our podcast for $43 billion, we're perfectly happy to take your $43 billion. But seriously, anything less than that, we're not into. Overall, the, the Netflix losses have triggered a tidal wave on Wall Street. You've got shares of fellow streamers like Disney and Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery, as well as Roku, all sliding at least 5% following the earnings report. Obviously, the market hasn't closed as we record this today, Thursday. So we'll obviously keep an eye on what's going on there. But, you know, in, in a larger sense, you know, there's so many great takes on on what's going on at Netflix and why this is happening. You know, our friend of the five, Joe Adalian, has a great look in, in his buffering newsletter. Uh, the New York Times duo, uh, John Colbin and Nicole Sperling, have a great take. Obviously, THR's fabulous Alex Weprin, another friend of the five, has several great stories up on THR.com. But what we're looking at here is... You know, Netflix is spending and spending and spending, and then they, you know, spend more to bring Shonda over and spend even more to bring Ryan Murphy over, and they want to compete, and they need to have these these top-tier projects to, you know, to keep your eyeballs and to get, keep your subscription dollars, and then now you've got competition from rivals, which Netflix never always used to say, our biggest competition is sleep, right? And now they're saying our biggest competition is, well, shit. HBO Max and Disney and Apple, which, by the way, is outspending Netflix on content and taking a very different approach. You know, Apple doesn't have a library, same as Netflix, but they are taking a, a more curated approach to content and, and focusing more on quality, big name stars, big swings, a couple of, you know, big IP. And they're, you know, you look at their executive roster, they've hired some of, of, of the best in town, you know, not to say that they're not brilliant execs at Netflix. Obviously, that that's that's true, too. But, you know, the big difference here is, you know, Netflix is trying, they're, they're doing price hikes and, you know, they, they're the most expensive streamer out there. They basically, you know, you look at their big hits and it's basically one weekend of, you know, out of out of the year, right? Bridgerton once a year for a weekend, maybe two in terms of streaming. Obviously, the news came out uh, on their top 10 list that Bridgerton season two outpaced season one by whatever bogus metrics that they're looking at. Um, but, you know, it's just... The, the spending has to end. So now you're seeing like, okay, we're, they're going to pull back on content spend, right? We've seen them have a quick hook on some of these expensive shows, right, that we've talked about, you know, and then some of the other things that, you know, haven't really, you know, clicked over, right? Babysitter's Club has critical adoration, but doesn't seem to have caught on with viewers, you know, and some of these other things. It's like, okay, so how is this going to have a ripple effect? How will Netflix cutting back? Will, will we start to see some of these big, massive deals for IP decline? I don't think we will. I think Netflix is just going to take a much more curated approach rather than throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. But Dan, it's there's just a lot a lot going on here and a lot to break down. There is. And as you say, the, the Netflix approach has always been something for everybody. If you don't like this show, we got another five shows coming next week. If you if you aren't the target demo for Orange is the New Black or whatever, here it's a new Adam Sandler movie. Here it's a Kevin James NASCAR comedy. Well, the Kevin James NASCAR comedy was canceled after one season. Orange is the New Black has been gone for years. So again, the the dumb people saying that that Netflix is becoming more woke or whatever, that it's just not factually accurate. Netflix has always had programming that was 
uh, diverse and varied. And Netflix has always had programming that was for a different kind of audience. There was always a house of cards, which is politically middle of the road, I would say. If there was an Orange is the New Black, there are always 15 true crime dramas that are occasionally, in some cases, borderline propaganda or, or detective propaganda or whatever for every immigration nation. Netflix has always wanted to be something for everybody, and the goal has always been that they would keep spending and spending and spending and hope that the other guys would fall off, basically. It was sort of a, again, it was the, we want to make sure that we're one of the last four people standing and then we'll figure it out. And it's not like it isn't working in the sort of the bigger picture sense. We did a mailbag segment a couple weeks ago talking about what streaming services were still of the best value. And I do still think that Netflix is one of the better values, but I don't at this moment think it's the best value. And I don't think you could have said that two years ago. I don't think you could have said, well, I'd frankly just rather have HBO Max. And I think now you could make that argument. You could make the argument. There are simply more TV shows that I like that are on Apple TV Plus, And certainly the ratio of quote unquote hits or critical hits to misses at Apple TV Plus, it's wildly disproportionately in their advantage over Netflix at this exact moment. But, that but you've also, you know, in, in looking goes. at that comparison too, Dan, you know, look at, at, at a show like Ted Lasso, right? Or, or, or more recently Severance, right? This is a narrative that builds over the span of a couple of weeks, right? Because they launch with, you know, a couple of episodes, two or three episodes, and then they go weekly. So it builds a narrative, right? So that, that's going to keep your subscribers watching and tuning in. And who knows what other stuff they'll find in, you know, in the meantime. Oh, we're paying for the stores. A new episode of Severance isn't out until, you know, next week. Or, you know, let's watch this instead. Right. Whereas Netflix, it's like, okay, great. You sat down, you binged, you know, five episodes of Stranger Things or whatever the, the complete season is. And you're like, okay, I'm done. Now there's 7,000 other things out here. What, what do I watch? I don't know. It's freaking, there's, you know, everything but the kitchen sink is in here. Whereas you go to Apple and there's like, okay, that's a hit. That's a hit. That's a hit. That costs $500 million, this, you know, whatever, you know, I mean, nothing costs $500 million unless you're Lord of the Rings, but like, anyway, you know, you, you get the point here, you know, like the other thing too is, you know, no one is, as you pointed out, no one is racing to go rewatch Orange is the New Black or House of Cards, but you look at HBO Max and it's like Friends, Big Bang Theory, Game of Thrones, lots of repeatability there, right? Peacock even has The Office, Saturday Night Live, 30, all these other great shows, right? And and if you look at it, you know, we've talked about this. I think this was in one of our podcast's very first segments where, you know, when you look at these companies and they're bringing home their legacy titles, they're launching the same way that Netflix did, right? Even when it was a DVD by mail company, that was a, a service that was built because you wanted to watch Battlestar Galactica, three red envelopes at a time, you know, and that was great. But now you're seeing all these other companies doing the exact same thing and like, okay, great. We're going to bring our legacy titles back. This is the laying the foundation for our service. And now we're adding Game of Thrones on top of it. And by the way, you can watch HBO content at the exact same time that it airs on HBO. And by the way, HBO Max has a bunch of great hits. You've got the new Sex in the City. You've got Sex Lives with College Girls. You've got Made for Love. I mean, you know, they're curating that service. And, and when you look at the, at the HBO Max strategy, they're saying, Okay, well, we have all of this content from HBO, and, and here's what our Max originals are going to basically not try to repeat that audience, but we're going to go for the female audience because the HBO content is so heavily male, we're going to basically hit all the demos, right? And, and that's how they're programming it. And Netflix is over here going, we'll take The Witcher, okay, we'll do a spinoff, we'll do Mark Millar's world, we'll do this over here, like – 
you know, they're, they're throwing shit at the wall. Right. And, and, you know, now it's like looking ahead. There was a great story in the Wall Street Journal today talking all about how they're going to basically try to do more on the nonfiction and the documentary space, because guess what? Significantly cheaper than doing scripted originals. Right. And we've seen that happen on, on linear with a lot of cable networks. Right. Look at what TBS and TNT have become. Right. There's only a, a couple little, you know, scripted things there, but predominantly it's either sports or unscripted. Right. And that it's the same thing, you know, and and, you know, now that every company has also reprioritized and refocused its executive ranks to to build around streaming. Now it's like, OK, well, are we emulating a business model that is successful? You know, so obviously, yeah, the whole industry is looking under the Netflix hood right now as best as it can. It's not even about who's watching these shows. It's about how much money they're spending. Is this a model that that we should be emulating? Because now Netflix is, you know, t- t- testing an ad service. They have absolutely no experience. Where you look at these legacy companies, Disney Plus has a tier with ads, right? That's all all tied in, right? You know, ABC obviously has a long track record and relationship, deep relationships with the advertising communities. Warner Media, the same thing. They've got, you know, all all their different. Uh, look, you want to talk about CW? They've got, you know, it, they have those relationships. They have ad sales teams. That's not something Netflix has any experience with. So Netflix is trying to basically be a broadcast network, even with its content, right? I mean, I think who was it? It was like Kenya Barris or, who said uh, famously that uh, Netflix is trying to become a broadcast network. Okay, so now you have the, the, the streamer that revolutionized Hollywood and upended everything in, in our industry, trying to be a broadcast network, which everyone is... The, the current narrative is no one's watching anything on linear. And so now you've got a, the streaming biggest streamer in, in, in the world trying to become a dying dinosaur. I, you know, how much longer can we go? Can we talk about this? Because it's just fascinating to see how this how the pieces are going to fall here. Like I said, it's, it's attempting to move forward by looking backward and whether that's an effective strategy is something else. But and and you look at the streamers that do have their advertising tiers, even if you have Hulu without advertising, you know that those shows were made to include the possibility of commercials. They have, you know, fades to black that even if you don't see an ad there, you go, okay, I guess that's where the ad was going to be. And Netflix is presumably going to start just kind of sticking ads willy nilly in things, which is a really, really obnoxious way to to watch anything. I occasionally find myself watching things on on Tubi because Tubi has an entirely random library of stuff that I I can't really explain why they have it. But every once in a while I'm watching something and the inevitability that their commercials will interrupt a key line of dialogue, it's like a hundred percent. So it's not really good for consumers. And I think everyone who has, for example, the Hulu with ads tier, my parents finally just committed to getting rid of the Hulu with ads and, and they've described it as life changing. And I, I completely understand that. And that's honestly what Netflix would just assume is that, I mean, Netflix just wants the more money to come in regardless of where it's coming from at this point. And giving customers more options is always good for business and and that's look, something whole- that the Netflix executives said this week in in acknowledging that they are open to an ad supported tier you know it's it, also it's 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 revenue right that's what this company needs revenue if they if they're not going to make it you know if the if the revenue's not going to come from subscriber gains it's got to come from other streams and we've talked about this too you know when Shonda Rhimes re-upped her deal with Netflix it also included the most fascinating part to me live events 
right? They have, there's like the whole Bridgerton ball, right? There's the, you know, I remember there was the Stranger Things drive through in multiple cities, you know? This is just one way Netflix is looking to to create new revenue streams. And the biggest way they can do that is is by creating and having hits that they control and that they don't have to p- pay licensing fees for, you know? And then we're also talking too, like, you know, the, we, I, I mentioned exploding kittens in the headline segment. Well, that deal also includes a mobile game that will launch next month. And that's another area that Netflix is, is looking to monetize too, right? Game, they have big video game execs. There's a big stranger things video game. I mean, it, again, it's, you want to own the content. You want to have the, the, the deals that bring in new revenue streams, right? Like that's why one of the reasons that adult animation is so popular because it repeats really well and the merchandising is gold and it's cheaper to produce than a scripted original, a live action scripted original. So, And and you don't come away looking as petty as Netflix is in the whole password sharing thing, which on one hand, of course you can go, well, Yes, if Netflix is losing hundreds of millions of dollars on password sharing, I understand why they would want to have hundreds of millions of dollars. I, too, would like to have hundreds of millions of dollars. But once you spend 10 to 15 years just sort of nodding politely and making occasional jokes about how everyone is using their parents' Netflix password, suddenly deciding to say, yeah, we would like the money for that. It, there's no way for that not to look petty. It, you know, fine, they can look petty, but it also looks smart because they basically said, okay, someone in your household is going to pay for this and you're going to use it. Well, you've basically made Netflix something that, that, that people want to have. It's like here, you've tra- it's, it's, like, it's like a drug deal. I mean, I can't, I'm not com- comparing Netflix to, to drug dealers, but it's the same concept, right? Here, try this for free. If you like it, give me a couple of bucks a month. <laughs> and, and that's what I, I choked on Twitter that, that episodes are going to start ending with. Uh, be sure to check out our Patreon page, which is not the way that anyone is going to look cool. But the minute at which Netflix starts sending a GoFundMe, and honestly, look, if Netflix were to set up a GoFundMe page for a third season of Babysitter's Club, would I pay a few bucks for a, a new season of Babysitter's Club on Netflix's Babysitter's Club GoFundMe? Yeah, I probably would. I, I don't know that I would pay more than, you know, five bucks, but I think I'd pay five bucks to get another season of Babysitter's Club. And maybe I, I would spend a hundred bucks for another season of Everything Sucks. I would totally pay five bucks for another season of uh, Everything Sucks. Absolutely. So, but it, it's, it's all about kind of opening these strange doors that Netflix always said that they didn't want to open. As you say, for years, it was the we're never going to do an advertising supporting t- uh, tier. Well, okay, gotta gotta stay in business somehow. Gotta gotta figure out the alternatives. Gotta gotta keep up with other people. I think in in the ideal world for Netflix, the consolidation around them would have already taken place. Nearly everybody else, competition wise, would be gone or irrelevant, and Netflix would still be the eight hundred pound gorilla and whatever. Netflix is still a very very large gorilla. I still watch a lot of Netflix programming, but. They're they're just not the only game in town anymore. And so they have to adapt. And maybe some of these adaptations could have been a few years ago. But man, that that image of the stock price going off a cliff was was vivid. I mean, more than 50 billion dollars in a single day. Jesus. Anyway, well, this is obviously a narrative that will continue to monitor much more to come on this topic. Number three. A third we're leaving streaming behind a little bit. I mean, there's other stuff happening on TV. We we can talk about some of that also. Uh, sticking with broadcast a little bit, broadcast longest running scripted comedy, 
is returning and has been renewed for a landmark 10th season. Leslie, I know that the Goldbergs has a, a special place in your heart, what with it being the story of your family and all. Talk a little bit about what we learned this week, and incidentally, no relationship no relation. between Leslie and Adam F. Goldberg or the other Adam Goldberg. No, especially the other Adam Goldberg. Look, uh, obviously, ABC renewed the Goldbergs for season 10. Uh, the show is from Sony Pictures Television. It's one of the very, very few Sony has left on broadcast is that studio long ago made streaming a, its main focus. But here's some trivia. Raise your hand. And obviously, I, I can't see if your hand is raised, but Dan, raise your hand if you realized that the Goldbergs has a designation of broadcast television's longest running scripted original live action show currently airing. Did you know that? I, I think I would have. I think I would have guessed because honestly, at this point, what are the alternatives? Yeah, I mean, I would have, you know, in my mind, Blackish feels like it's been around longer. Obviously, you know, we said goodbye to Blackish this week, which you know, pouring one out. There's a great uh, interview that um, our Rick Porter did with Kenya Barris and showrunner Courtney Lilly up on THR.com if you want to hear more uh, about what happened there and, and go inside that ending. But Dan, can you name, without looking at, at, at the script that I sent you, can you name the other 10 broadcast comedies that have made it to the 10 season order? And this is you broadcast said, live action scripted. But you sent me a script and I looked at it. So therefore, of course, I can name at least some of them that I might not have been able to name yesterday, but go ahead and list for the kids. It's an elite list, Dan. Friends, Married with Children, The Jeffersons, Cheers, Frasier, which is also returning with a Paramount Plus revival, MASH, Modern Family, Two and a Half Men, The Big Bang Theory, and Will and Grace. The latter, that tally also includes its NBC revival, but that's a pretty incredible list to be a part of for the Goldbergs. And uh, again, to emphasize, those are those are broadcasts. So no one, no one from the it's always I'm, sunny I'm not in Philadelphia. Shading, it's always sunny. Yeah, I'm exactly. just specifically looking at broadcasts because we are in in a world where if we you know to go back and talk about streaming for a second here, Netflix shows don't last long. Right? We've talked about this a bunch. Most are lucky if they get to three seasons. Very few go go four or beyond, especially the ones that Netflix doesn't own. But for a broadcast in, in this climate where most shows barely get the time to to resonate. I mean, look what happened with Rebel, right? ABC was all in. You know, they promoted the hell out of it. They gave it the great post-Grey's Anatomy time slot. It was a whole night of Krista Vernoff shows, you know, coming out of Grey's Anatomy, coming out of Station 19. And then two or three weeks later, they're like, you're gone, you know? And Krista's obviously one of their, if not their most important showrunner. So the time that you can get the, I think the era of, Launching a show that is going to run for 10 seasons is long gone. So for a show to, to continue, especially the Goldbergs, right, which obviously didn't have a very uh, smooth season. Obviously, you know, Jeff Garland was let go or, or left, depending on, you know, whose PR you want to listen to following HR investigations. The show said goodbye to the late, great George Siegel this season. So you've, you've lost two of the, the of the core adult characters on this show and it's still going. And it hit 10 seasons. And that's, it's still obviously, you know, I'm sure by this point, it's probably a co-production with Sony and ABC may probably worked a deal to lower the licensing fees or whatever it is. But Wendy McClendon Covey continues to, to uh, hold court on that one. But yeah, the, the, the era where like, where broadcast networks launch and sustain a, a live action comedy for 10 seasons. I mean, look, as great as everyone thinks Abbott Elementary is, there's no way that's going to run for 10 seasons. 
there's no way the people involved would probably want it to run for 10 seasons because everyone wants to do other things. That that list that you gave, which, of course, is a list of, you know, the most truly, you know, literally the most successful <laughs> broadcast comedies in history. But also you look at them and they were all smash hits. Several of them were genuine phenomenons, something like Married with Children was kind of the backbone of a fledgling network. Yeah, that, so, that helped launch Fox, that and The Simpsons. Yeah, so, and The Goldbergs is interesting because it's an outlier regardless. It was never the biggest comedy on ABC. It was on the bubble for around half of those years, I would guess. Uh, you know, people expecting it to come back, but not the first thing renewed, largely because something like Modern Family was always there and that was always the huge hit. Same and, with Blackish too, the critical acclaim uh, as well. Awards absolutely. recognition. And that's and that's the other thing I was about to bring up is that the Goldbergs doesn't have that. So so I many mean Wendy McClendon Covey should have had an Emmy nomination at some point during that show's run. I think I think you are right about that. I don't know that necessarily there's anything else that over the years I would have thought was Emmy worthy, but absolutely at, at any given point, especially in the early seasons before there just got to be way, way, way too much television. Uh, Wendy McClendon Covey absolutely could have, should have been nominated for an Emmy for that show. No, no question about that. So it, it's sort of a, a little engine that could kind of thing in a way that not all of these are. Some of, you know, like Cheers obviously has the whole, it was the fourth lowest rated show or whatever it was narrative and it survived because Brandon Tartikoff believed in it and other stuff, more legitimate, tangible reasons. That's not the story that Goldberg's has. Goldberg's has just kind of chugged along as a solid performer. And I, I'm intrigued to see it renewed because you mentioned the Jeff Garland exit. Th this season has been a mess. It has definitely felt like to me, the entire season was heading towards the series finale. It really felt to me like, a, okay, you know, Adam's getting ready to go to college. Uh, Erica just got married. Whatever it is that Barry's doing, Barry's doing, uh, you know, pops died, but that was last season. And, then they had to deal with Jeff Garland and the handling of the Jeff Garland situation, which I place the blame completely on on Jeff Garland, because I don't know who else you can place the blame on, because there was no point at which they knew that they were having to make a show without him. And so you go and you watch the wedding episode, the way that they had to direct um, the wedding episode, including sticking Jeff Garland's face CG on someone and other really weird things um uh noel murray uh who's a great writer and journalist in the online space uh got to enjoy a period of strange notoriety on twitter when he posted that wedding scene which is so ridiculous and wendy mcclevin covey got sort of a little bit chippy about it and said look we're making do the best we can and i think that's absolutely true but just because you're making do the best you can doesn't mean it's necessarily good. And I, I don't know what they're supposed to do now without him. And I don't know how they're really supposed to handle the fact that there's a strong possibility that they face next season with none of the children living at home uh, and with Beverly living at home without a husband because he can't be featured in scenes. 
I'm genuinely interested in how they're going to handle, like, is it going to become a buddy comedy with Wendy McClendon Covey and Tim Meadows, which several episodes this season have been, and I mean, if that's what it is, that was is a that great bad? dynamic that was in school, but, you know, the short-lived spinoff, right? I mean, you know, the other thing is, this this has been a show that's not been afraid to recast. Obviously, you know, recasting a member of that family is a little bit harder, but I, I remember, God, I a few seasons ago, Adam's love interest was recast, right? And, and 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 Barry has had love interest cast midway through, so. Yeah, I mean, so do they recast for Jeff Garland? I mean, you know, this is all, all the inside baseball stuff. Do they kill him off? I mean, I'd be curious to see how a comedy deals with that, with with grief, you know, especially in the, of, uh, you know, you can maybe explore some more of the Judaism here, right? How, do, how does a, a very Jewish mother deal with grief when her kid, when she has an empty nest? You know, they, they're, look, they're, there's opportunity here and it remains a sweet comedy and a nice little success story. And, you know, the other, the other thing, too, that, that that's interesting is that the show continues on, even though creator Adam F. Goldberg left Sony years ago for a deal at Disney's, obviously doing uh, the Muppets show there with Lily Singh um, and the Electric Mayhem t- uh, show. But, you know, he's still, I think kind of involved i think he's still giving you know some home video stuff but overall it's the same showrunners that had been with the, in the writer's room since day one so you know for a show that had for nearly a decade avoided controversy it's it's doing its best i mean as wendy said it's doing its best to, best to kind of weather the storm but now you're looking at it and you're like okay so there's a future here so let's go let's see what what's coming how are they going to handle this you know obviously you know you see what, how how glee handled the, you know the devastating loss of cory monteith this is obviously not not anything like that because obviously Jeff Garland was let go for a specific reason, but there's an opportunity to re- for reinvention here, and there's an opportunity to tell new stories, and I think that's probably a big reason that the show continues to get renewed. And and look, you know, with with Blackish ending and Modern Family, you know, a couple of years now gone, this is an opportunity for ABC to kind of look at at this show and say, okay, now you're. you're this is this is our our signature comedy show. Maybe it's going to give it a little bit of, of a marketing push. I don't know. I mean, I always laugh that the key art every season because they basically just re airbrushed it every year. <laughs> They've never spent a ton of money on this show, so maybe they will now. I don't know. I think much more likely they're going to cross their fingers on Abbott Elementary Emmy nominations and hope that Abbott Elementary becomes mm-hmm. that signature show. I think yeah. that would be that and would be ABC's dream. And you can probably pair those if they're not already. Not that I think scheduling matters much anymore. But. No, no, no. I at this, at this point, while I do watch Goldbergs every week, I assure you I watch it exclusively on Hulu. So uh. <laughs> there you go. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Our guest this week is Natasha Leone, co-creator, star, and frequent director on Netflix's Russian Doll, which earned her Emmy nominations for writing, producing, and acting in the first season. Her earlier acting credits, of course, include Slums of Beverly Hills, the American Pie series, and an Emmy-nominated role on Orange is the New Black. The new season of Russian Doll hit Netflix on Wednesday, April 20th. And just as a warning, there are some spoilers. I would not say it is a spoilery interview, but definitely there are some. Welcome to the podcast, Natasha. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Leslie. It's a thrill to be here. Thrill to be alive, really. (laughs) True story. (laughs) True story. So the first season of Russian Doll felt like this wonderful contained Thing. And I was surprised when folks started talking about even the possibility of a second season. When did you know that this was something that had a second season in it 
And when did you figure out what a second season was going to be? Well, uh, you know, I think that Amy Poehler and Leslie Headland and I, uh, when we uh, initially uh, pitched, you know, with the creators of the show, when we pitched it to Netflix, it was always sort of uh, anthological in three seasons. So I guess it sort of became, uh, you know, one of these things we say is what it felt like when everybody sort of decided, gosh, that was it. That was really it. They cracked it. For us, for me, it was always just this, you know, a beautiful homage to Julieta Messina and Knights of Kiberia, this kind of send off of, uh, you know, uh, walking down the road. And I think we quite intentionally wanted to kind of uh, end and the uh, just, you know, wrap up this part of the tale. But I don't think that we ever uh, even saw it as that. And it was it was nice. It was moving that people experienced it that way. But it certainly was not a concern from our standpoint. At the same time, you know, season two, obviously, you know, you pitch this as an anthology. Season two does feel completely different. And but it's also this other separate but yet kind of connected adventure. Um, When you what was the pitch for Netflix for season two? And would you say that there was an overarching theme from uh, for the season? Uh, I definitely remember mentioning uh, Persephone quite a lot and pomegranate seeds. And I think it was probably excessive looking back. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I always knew that I, I guess, you know, in a very, in a very uh, silly sense, it was kind of if everybody wanted to call season one Groundhog Day. I just thought it would be fun, funny to call season two Quantum Leap. And uh, on a deeper uh, sense, it was uh, if season one was sort of asking the question of how do I stop dying, then season two is going to ask the question, you know, how do I start living? Or to hear Amy tell it, you know, she is the one that titled it Russian doll. And she always said that it was a uh, this Matryoshka doll that, you know, the outer layer and then the journey of the seasons would be to try to get uh, closer and closer to that littlest doll inside of us, which is very sweet. But, you know, I think all of those things were true. So season one was kind of, you know, at the time, this, this thing, I think I'm always sort of like, you know, writing or thinking from a bit of objective distance of this experience that, you know, uh, we all know about me and my uh, shenanigans with the uh, the drug years. And so it was this very tangible thing of of a uh, self-destructive person, you know. So Nadia starts as this, this, uh, this lone wolf, this kind of defiant person and finds this connection with Alan that sort of opens up a way out, an end to sort of, you know, the idea of an end to self-destruction and stopping the sort of cycle of, of dying, um, you know, and it's really about life and death, but that is a sort of outer layer, at least in my experience of the kind of, you know, it's the sort of the first reaction to, a, you know, a, having a mind seems to be to self-destruct and self-criticize around it. Uh, you know, the second question that I found myself grappling with as a high functioning adult, which sadly I am, is, you know, what is it, what does it really mean, this business of being alive? And what does it mean to want to be alive? Suddenly, I'm, um, you know, uh, I have to deal with this idea of, uh, you know, finite time. So it's sort of one, one season one is sort of deals in mortality and season, tw- season two is on the nature of time itself and how I sort of use that time in the here and now, now that I actually want it. And so do you still have the three season plan for Russian Doll or was I think it, I read in an interview that you did with our great colleague Jackie Strauss um, a couple of years ago that you pitched this as three, but it could it could be two, it could be four or it could just be three. You know, uh, so basically, what's your long term plan beyond this? 
and how would it fit in with a larger, uh, you know, if season one is life and death and season two is living? Uh, well, you know, I certainly, you know, hope that I get that chance and, you know, we'll see. So hopefully, uh, people like it. I think a lot of it depends on audience response. I mean, it definitely, uh, I was very moved by the response to season one and, you know, that being so sort of transparent wasn't a, uh, you know, a shaming sort of, you know, uh, experience, you know, Game of Thrones, shame, shame. <laughs> I'm not going to parade me down Netflix row and, you know, throw rocks at me. So I was so grateful that that didn't happen or the Twitter equivalent. Um, but so I think, you know, it, it sort of, it invited a kind of deeper dive. Uh, you know, I think it's, uh, television even more so than the movies is really this conversation, you know, in the edit, I'm always saying, remember people have cell phones, uh, let's keep it moving, you know, uh, so, you know, I, I, I hope I get to do it. The most uh, grandiose of the fantasies would be, you know, it's eight episodes in, in season one and uh, season two is seven. So, you know, you'd have to keep going down the line to make a full rush. And also you need at least six. So I explained that to everybody and hopefully they were listening. Uh, I said, otherwise it's just going to look funny. It's going to look like we forgot the third season. Uh, but, you know, then one option would be to go back, right? Because it's a doll. So you got to go to seven and then back to eight. Uh, another option would be to leave it there. So I think these are the things to be considering. Well, that's a that's a good pitch that you gave. And I find it funny this season, a lot of very outlandish things are happening. But whenever your character or Alan tell anyone what's happening, people accept it surprisingly easily. When you attempted to pitch this to Netflix, did they accept it surprisingly easily or did they have pages and pages of questions? Uh, you know, Alison Silverman, who's one of our, you know, great writers and, a, you know, just a, a, a great lady. Uh, she was with us on season one as well. I remember she brought in uh, Octavia Butler's Kindred to the room and she said, you know, here's a, sort of like another lens of time travel. Like, of course, we all love Back to the Future and these certain things. But the idea that there are different ways uh, to look at time travel. And, um, you know, I had... Uh, you know, just, so just to say that I think for the characters on the show or Netflix, who I think of as characters on the show, that there was, we do already have a language as, you know, sort of movie lovers and, and uh, consumers of media around ideas like, uh, you know, quantum leaping and uh, die another day and all these sort of things. So we think we understand them. And I think as New Yorkers and just as poor listeners in a modern world, you know, we very quickly sort of acclimate information and say, you know, what does this have to do with me? Are we finally still meeting up at the coffee shop at four o'clock? Uh, and, you know, there's this sort of chosen family game in, in Russian doll, which is, you know, but really in the here and now, are you showing up for your sick godmother in the hospital? No, you're not. That's sort of what Maxine's kind of present day concern is. And she's like, no, I'm getting the equivalent of a free lapse. I found a wormhole. And it's kind of like, OK, what I'm hearing is you're not showing up. So, you know, and who wouldn't want to uh, hang out with Annie Murphy instead? Um, but in a way, back to, uh, you know, uh, this kind of Alison Silverman idea, I think the other thing that was really important to me was like, I, I mean, of course, I'm a, a high school dropout, so I know very little about these things, but I certainly, they sparked in a blue skyway for me, big uh, ideas that felt fun to write fiction around, Um there was this uh, Italian quantum physicist, this guy, Carlo Rovelli, who talked about something called uh, the arrow of time. And he was sort of talking about this idea of why can I 
you know, remember, remember the past, but I can't remember the future. And I became like really into that idea of sort of, could you actually present an entire show under the conceit of a sort of block universe? Like if you're already in this world of string theory and multiverse and spooky action at a distance of, you know, Nadia and Alan are experiencing the same things happening to them, you know, can, can you actually say that sort of, uh, you know, like an epigenetic sort of matrilineal uh, excavation would be happening, you know, you'd be experiencing for each of us the moments of our of our past are with us in the moments of our presence. Like we can't we can't leave behind the history of who we are and we can be triggered in a moment. And is that not a form of time travel that we're all experiencing, you know, daily, moment to moment? So I think that, you know, in the pitch to Netflix, I I basically told them these ideas and uh, you know, and then I just, you know, mentioned the pomegranate seeds and here we are. Uh, <laughs> So I, yeah, I, I was really, I love that line that Ruth has in 204, she says, and I love Elizabeth Ashley so much, uh, mostly because she smokes more than me. So it makes me feel good about myself. Uh, <laughs> but she, you know, she has this line of uh, trauma is a, is a topographical map written on a child and it takes a lifetime to heal, you know? So I sort of, I just kept, you know, I was, you know, people people like hearing about that in, in conference rooms. <laughs> <laughs> and see here, I was just going to ask: Has this been gestating in your mind since Kate and Leopold? Ah, <laughs> oh, no, but I, I know, I do. I, I, uh, I wonder. I wonder if James Mangold has ever seen Russian Doll. You know, the internet found some moment that I carry around. If the show is about unloading shame, some of the shame that I have is they found this moment from Kate and Leopold where. I'm like walking with Meg Ryan and I'm very busy because, you know, I'm her secretary and uh, and I'm acting. And I, I guess I go to press the elevator button, but the internet has noticed that I just pressed the side of the button because I'm trying to fake it and I don't want to actually call the button and then have the elevator show up and ruin the shot. Uh, and they've really circled this and let me know, you know, what a hack I am. True. So now, so now we know if you actually had the ability to travel back in time, exactly what you would travel back in time to correct. My one regret in life is that when I'm up in the middle of the night, <laughs> circling back through all the things I've done wrong, which that's the big one on my deathbed, all of Russian Doll is just in this, just like Once Upon a Time in America, when De Niro is in the opium den and the phone begins to ring. And then he looks back at a life. For me, that phone ringing is missing the button on the elevator in Kate and Leopold. May that be the worst thing that the internet should ever want to make fun of you for. Boy, I can't believe, thank God, my sort of wild views are not in the internet era. Although, boy, I'd, I'd really have some photographs. I'd make Hunter S. Thompson look like a chump. So obviously, you know, the first season of Russian Doll came out in early 2019, and here we are years later, and and a lot of us kind of felt like we were living our own Russian dolls within when we were st all stuck in quarantine, and you know, and those of us, you know, working from home, it you know, it's it still kind of feels that way, you know. Did that in the way that you know that that shared feeling that I think a lot of people had did that impact the kind of type of story that you wanted to tell in season two? Yeah, I mean, it did. I, like, I remember that there was this run, like, Polar came into the uh, writer's room one day, and uh, and she was talking a lot about, like, oh, you know, we had we had this run in the uh, first episode 
where I'm walking through the hospital to uh, visit Ruth, but I'm walking through like a big shot, like, hey, you know, uh, mallet through the heart, no problem, I've been there. Or, you know, it was uh, like uh, Sam Kinison, you know, enters the emergency room or something, or Rodney Dangerfield or something, you know, just doing kind of uh, bits. And I remember that it, it's certain stuff like that started to feel kind of like off color in a way of just, you know, hospitals had become a lot less, you know, funny, you know, like even the, the idea of this kind of razor edge of, of life and death were suddenly, uh, you know, so close to home for all of us, you know, that I think in that sense, it shifted. And, uh, I would guess, you know, for, uh, myself and, and, you know, so many um, writers during this time, it was interesting that you had a show, like I, I heard um, D.V. DeVicentes, who did, uh, you know, who I'm friends with, who did Pam and Tommy recently talking about this, which was, I guess, a similar thing of, um, it was supposed to be, the, you know, from the writer's room through post-production delivery was nine months. But of, of course, because of the pandemic, that ended up being three years, you know? So in that time in between, there was definitely a, um, Alex Bono, who's really my partner on the season and the, the only other director. And uh, Alice Jew is this brilliant, you know, writer. I, I love her. She's a philosophy major from Harvard who also ran the Lampoon. And so she's she's brilliant. And she's in her early 20s. She's also writing on this new uh, Ryan Johnson show that uh, that I'm doing called Poker Face. And she's, she's brilliant. And uh, also a lot of like the key, you know, department heads. I think life was feeling sort of so tenuous in that moment of like, will it ever return to normal? And, you know, uh, I began to understand it as it was going to end up being, remember in Jadarowski's Dune, the documentary, how he ends up with just that coffee table book of like Mobius and only like Den- Denis Villeneuve has seen it or some shit. And uh, anyway, I love Jadarowski's Dune. It's maybe my favorite movie. And, uh, but I became, I was just like, well, you know, of course I'm going to you know, not make it. And so we started getting very into the storyboards this, uh, with this guy, Peter Beck, and Alex and I would just, for hours, just be doing, you know, on these Zoom calls, just like endlessly prepping the show. And we just be like, all right, well, well, we never will make the season, but we'll have this. And so I think we were ending up with this sort of such extensive prep, hundreds and hundreds of drafts, rewriting and rebreaking stuff. So, you know, and and people were really kind of you know, like Diane Lederman, the production designer, was really like sticking with it, just sort of like still pitching ideas. I think it was a way to kind of hold on to this idea of someday there will be a return to normalcy, you know? Did you have an ending in mind at all times? Did the ending change through those thousands of drafts that you did? Yeah, I mean, weirdly, like, you know, the ending, at, uh, we we started calling it like the Michael Clayton ending or something, which is sort of just, you know, it was going to be this you know, there's some of them were very depressing. It was just going to be like her sitting there like in the hospital bed and like, you know, just beeping its way to flatline with Ruth or something. And it was like, oh, this is terrible. And others were like, they were this like explosive ending of like, you know, sort of like a grenade. And for some reason, like the six train at Astor Place blows up behind her. We're like, that's not it. Uh, and we also had like the, uh, the seventh seal ending for a long time, which was this sort of the idea of the parade. So it was going to be like magic hour as like, you know, the characters like were kind of like walking towards Tompkins for a sort of a, you know, like a death, like, a, you know, like a they were walking towards like, you know, sort of this idea of Ruth, but it would be like silhouetted by night. You know, I did try to convince Netflix to have an actual angel of death um, be like interview me and the EPK 
but they didn't go for it. Uh, I just thought that would have been fun. <laughs> That's a side note. Um, but just to say, uh, an actual, uh, you know, angel of death was not present in those, in those ideas. And, and anyway, you know, there's, uh, Devin Katucci, who is our steady cam operator. It's a, it's a funny thing when you're kind of like doing all these jobs from the inside out in a weird way, uh, because I would, you know, be directing and sort of, um, you know, also like what's great about, uh, uh, you know, acting and writing and, and directing is stuff that gets cut for the budget. You can just throw back in there with improv, you know, so it's a very handy uh, trick. Uh, so something to think about. And uh, but Devin, he like weirdly became sort of a, a scene partner, for lack of a better term, like the steady cam operator. And Nadia, since so much of the show is sort of this dance and uh, we just ended up you know, it's like we had these like silent cues with each other to sort of like keep going. Like in a weird way, it's a, a telepathic or something because he sort of can pick up on my, it's almost like it's just a dance. And so he just kept walking. I remember Colin, our poor sweet first AD, who was also with me on not Orange is the New Black. And there was just, we were walking past, you know, green lights and, you know, downtown New York. And, but it was, uh, you know, dead of night, no cars. And and we just ended up with this really like just long steady cam pull and and uh just felt like holy shit, I think we just accidentally cracked. Sort of of course we still had the you know, these uh these moments at Maxine's at the end and, and that was sort of there. Although at various points also, you know, the the uh the, the subway doors kind of function as like the hero shot or the reset points, much like the mirror resets in season one this year. And uh, there was also the the sort of the like uh, Charlie Kaufman, Spike Jones, sort of Michelle Gondry pitch on the table of the subway doors just opening into Maxine's bathroom, but that was also sort of proved to him impractical. And it, I'm proud of us that we usually went with the most, you know, grounded choice. <laughs> now, the season is but obviously just to say they all had sort of like the same emotional landing. It was just about sort of how do you get to the other one I wanted to do. You're reminding me was. What I call the Terry Gilliam uh, Brazil ending, one of my favorite things is I love the way De Niro is always crawling through ducks in Brazil. And so I kind of wanted to like crawl through a duct to end up, you know, at Max Jeans. Nobody liked that one either. <laughs> <laughs> so the season is built around all of these wild flights of intellectual fancy, but to me, from my perspective, it also feels significantly more personal than the first season. Is is that just my perception, or does it feel like that to you as well? Yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing. I'm like, I guess I always think about, you know, Carrie Fisher, and uh, in a way, uh, Hunter S. Thompson. And I, uh, I sort of think about, like, what really is the downside of, of that game? Like, um, I guess... I, I, it's it's like I I, uh, I wonder if I'm supposed to be ashamed about a life of transparency or if there's actually a way in which, you know, using these specifics really just helps to color in character with such detailed specificity that you end up telling a much more universal story because people can sort of see themselves in that more easily because it's not quite so general. And I I do think that's sort of like my, uh, you know, greater goal. Now that I'm getting older, despite the black clothes and the smoking, I, 
I think I'm sort of softening, you know, from like this kind of tough guy thing. And I, it's like, I, I want the kids to be okay, you know? And, um, sort of like the most maternal part of me is like, I always am picturing like some weirdo sort of seeing like John Waters female trouble for the first time and being like, ah, this is great. You know, a movie just for me. And it's like, I'm making stuff for her, you know, and I don't know, even know where she is, but like, I figure like, she's probably got some like weird household, you know what I mean? And feels kind of like an outcast. And, uh, and then like, there's sort of an opportunity, you know, you've got this kind of hip show and like, you know, you got Chloe 70, the coolest girl in the history of the world, you know, and just to say like, Hey, you know, it's, it's totally normal to kind of, to go through stuff, you know? And, and, uh, yeah, I just want people to be a little bit more compassionate about their own, uh, humanity and history. Like, I don't, you know, I think I had so much personal shame around my mother's untreated mental illness, like as a kid, never being able to, uh, you know, bring people back to like the weird one bedroom apartment, you know, and that it was like, oh yeah, this is like her weird stuff. And so it's not organized. And, you know, that, that it's, uh, so yeah, I guess I just sort of like want to, uh, uh, let go of, of, of some of that, uh, shame now that I'm a grown up and everyone's dead. Uh, and, and that, that means something to me. And, and certainly I was, yeah, it felt like, it felt like, um, it felt like a, an invitation, I guess, when the first season was uh, well-received, that maybe it was going to be okay to do that. And you, of course, like Nadia, have a Hungarian-Jewish background, and that is a major portion of this season. Had you done the whole genealogical thing, I, I you know, with, with Jews of our age, when you attempt to go back and do family trees, and you get to Europe, and then inevitably there's the, <laughs> there's the point where you can't go further back, and that, you know, is usually in the 1930s and 40s. And that's what it is. Is is this sort of a product of looking back at your own past, even beyond your mother? I mean, I don't, uh, I've never done like a 23andMe and I've never done a Finding Your Roots or anything like that. But I sort of believe them. It seems like, I believe that I'm sort of fairly like as Ashkenazi, uh, you know, Jew Eastern Europe block as it gets, probably. It, it seems to track. Uh, you know, my mother was born in Paris, so I'm technically French. Uh, I'm not just uh, Flatbush in Budapest. Uh, so, you know, I've I've never really I've never really done it, but I was certainly curious around. Um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of sort of uh, you know books and and sort of material written about you know children of Holocaust survivors, and I think I was very curious about kind of um, you know forgiving both my my grandmother, kind of like. Her, uh, like, just that she was doing the best she could with her set of circumstances and that, therefore, my mother was coming by it honestly. And, you know, I uh, also was very curious about the way in which th this idea of being a survivor skips a generation, you know, that Nadia and her grandmother oddly have, you know, a lot in common, you know. And then um, Chloe's character, Lenora, sort of is this un, untreated character in between and the way in which, you know, Ruth as a godmother kind of, you know, uh, holds up, you know, this non-judgmental sort of space around Nora. And I was curious about sort of like generations of female friendships. So that Vera and Delia, you know, uh, played by this, um, Athena, who's so great, that they had this kind of friendship, you know, in the war that brought them as immigrants to New York. And then, of course, you see that with 
Chloe and Annie Murphy. And, you know, then again with Nadia and Maxine and these generations of sort of chosen family that kind of get us through things together. And I was also very curious about this kind of the world that Alan comes from, you know, like this, uh, this idea of, um, you know, like black intelligentsia. And, you know, we had seen, uh, I listened a lot to, uh, I, I love Karina Longworth so much. And she had on her podcast, you must remember this. She had, um, this episode about the relationship between Paul Robeson and, and Lena Horn and how, um, you know, towards the end of her life, like Lena had to kind of say that she wasn't really, you know, friends with, uh, Paul Robeson anymore. And he had kind of moved to Russia. And, um, I just felt like, you know, for all the stuff that we know about the McCarthy era, whatever America, we, we rarely talk about, you know, the black experience of that with, uh, Canada Lee and, and, um, and Paul and, you know, many others. And so I was quite curious around this idea of, um, you know, Alan really comes from a sort of science family, like his mother is a doctor and his grandmother is an engineer. And uh, yeah, I was just, I sort of thought the idea that Alan would be able to also sort of see a generation past and sort of potentially find some relief there. I think in both cases that the piece they're finding is kind of hard, hard won, but is uh, noteworthy. So the first season, it felt as if the Jewish mysticism aspect of it and the spiritual aspect, it was there, it was kind of under the surface. This season, it comes over the surface, I would say, a little bit. This is a this is a much Jewier season, which I mean, is surely is a compliment. It, was that also calculated? Is that is that sort of the prism through which you naturally view things and naturally like to view things? I mean, you know, I am a, a Talmud student, so... Uh... In addition to, uh, you know, not speaking Hungarian, I do read Aramaic. Uh, and, uh, you know, I I uh, obviously am not a practicing Jew at all. Um, I would say, you know, it's like whatever that, you know, culturally sort of like Manhattan, you know, Lenny Bruce kind of whatever that vibe is. Um, or maybe even like in my better days, kind of like one of those uh, want to be Buddhist Jews or something, if anything, uh, or a Satanist, uh, quite possibly. Uh, but definitely not. Uh, you know, I eat bacon and I'm flicking light switches like nobody's business. So I am curious, though, uh, about, I guess, culture and history. And I guess I just wanted to, um, you know, in order to kind of like explore something fully and take sort of the biggest risks around that exploration, it feels very helpful to have, you know, firsthand um, uh, authority around it in a way. So like, you know, I can speak to uh, drugs with authority. I can speak to Judaism with authority. I can speak to being the child of mental illness with authority because those are my personal experiences. So like, I'm allowed to say whatever the hell I want because it's, you know, that's my own uh, journey to process. And I think that it just sort of opens up the ability to kind of uh, speak to a wider swath of human experience. You know, I just, I've just done a lot of traveling, I guess, up and down the scales of uh, life. And I've found that the specifics sort of matter less. It's like, uh, you know, the feelings that we all share, despite the specificity of experience. So I'm just using my specifics to kind of do a global thing if possible. 
But when some of your specifics are as dark as some of the specifics that come into this season, whether it's the Holocaust, but also, you know, those things that you say you speak of with authority, when you're actually in the process of breaking stories, does it does anything scare you? Like, do you, do you go, can I make this funny and still be in 1944 Budapest? Can I make this funny and still deal with this pain with this trauma? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm constantly terrified. Uh, I guess I really hold close to my heart the idea that we all live and we die. And so uh, ultimately, you know, what is it? You know, it's okay. Um, Lena Wertmuller, uh, Seven Beauties, I thought was, you know, an interesting movie of just, you know, she she kind of had found an interesting language for sort of, uh, you know, it's uh, it's different. It's not, you know, Budapest or anything, but it is kind of, Getting into this, uh, you know, I don't think I wanted to kind of get into um, any sort of Roberto Benini business, mostly because what a strange movie looking back. And, you know, I did get a copy of The Day the Clown Cried. Just kidding. Uh, I didn't. <laughs> don't was, don't tease our listeners like that. <laughs> I, that was the full curriculum for season two of the writers. It was just watching The Day the Clown Cried 10 times in a row on LSD. And then we started writing and all bets were off. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I was scared all the time. Like, I cannot believe that this thing is uh, in the can, you know? I would, like, listen to George Harrison in the morning and do push-ups, like Linda Hamilton. I'd be like, we're going to have a big day of going up and down subway steps. So get ready and get your head in the in the game, kid. You know, uh, it was really scary. Um, the, the The truth is the truth. I don't know what to say. I mean, one of the other things, obviously, in, in addition to, to doing everything on this, you started directing as well at the end of last season, do a bunch more on this. And I, I'm, I'm sure Dan's got a question about that, too. But beyond that, you also are partners with Maya Rudolph in a production company called Animal P Pictures, where you guys have a sci-fi animated show called The Hospital and the works for Amazon. You know, as you look at what you're doing in terms of producing and going th beyond things that you're acting in or, or doing voice roles in, what do you want that from that company? What do you want that company to stand for? Well, I, I, uh, I love, I love Animal. Uh, and, uh, I love Maya and I love that we get to do this thing together. We had this, uh, sort of like get together for, um, you know, uh, Rita McDotty directed this, uh, documentary about these, uh, uh, Middle Eastern lady, uh, heavy metal band. Uh, it's called, uh, Sirens and it was, uh, at Sundance and that was our first movie and there was no Sundance. So we had this kind of party and, um, uh, uh, Sammy Cohn showed up who's, uh, the director of this new movie we've got coming out called Crush that's coming out on uh, Hulu. That's a, a queer teen rom-com kind of a thing with Rome Lanter and Ali Cavallo. And um, it just, you know, it was very, uh, Shiraco was there, uh, Shiraco Dunlap and with Hospital and a bunch of her writers and Kristen was one of the writers on um, that movie Crush is also with Shiraco in the room and Shiraco is with me on Russian Doll and that's how I know her. And it just felt like, holy shit, the seeds we're planting at Animal are starting to kind of really blossom and and grow. And, you know, everyone was like excited to be there and felt like they had uh, autonomy and their projects were kind of like getting made. And they were just, you know, I just think we just want to make things. Uh, and it was really, really cool. I was very moved. You know, I'm also working on this uh, show I, cre I created with uh, Alia Shawkat and, and um, it's her story and she's brilliant. Like there's just... So very uh, exciting time. We just uh, wrapped uh, 
you know, uh, Maya's new show uh, that Alan Yang and Matt Hubbard created for Apple. And I'm about to start this, you know, show with uh, Ryan Johnson. And, you know, I just got to work with Janixa. And it's it's like there's a lot of very uh, sort of cool things happening that really feel like this era of, uh, you know, part of what's great about Russian Nile is like I do it and then I'm sort of done with me for a while. Like I'm kind of, I get very uh, sort of like fully examined for that moment and then experience the other stuff is like time to kind of get new information. And I'm very curious about other people's things. I love a life behind the scenes. Uh, directing, nothing makes me happier than directing. It's like, I feel so finally like at my own, you know, Fosse piece. I just, it's, uh, I'm very happy there. And, you know, Fosse got to smoke all the cigarettes and that's really, what it's about. <laughs> and, uh, no, but it's, it's, it's a really, it's a good feeling. And it feels like the place where my defects become assets most concretely. And so, so yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm very happy about this time. And it feels like animals sort of like vision is, you know, really beginning to come to, uh, to fruition. Speaking a little bit more on the on the directing front, uh, the finale of the first season was the first time you had done episodic directing. But between the seasons, you did a lot of directing. You did Orange, you did Shrill, you did a few other shows. High how fidelity. Were, how were you different as a director when you started the premiere of the second season? How was season two director Natasha different? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess I'd also done Aquafina. I think the only thing I'd done... Um, before Rush and All was like this, uh, short film, which looking back is, you know, totally insane. Uh, it's like the student film I should have made at NYU. It's Kabiria Charity Chastity or something. Nobody could remember that title. And it's like, so I'm trying to be like the homage to, you know, Fellini and Fossey. And I was like, oh, it's the third piece of the trilogy. And then people are like, what trilogy? Uh, Knights of Kabiria and Sweet Charity. Don't you know that? Those are... Oh, wow. Nobody wanted that. Oh, okay. I guess you guys just don't know how to make hits. Uh, but <laughs> Jung-Yoon Chung is an incredible cinematographer. And that's where I met Peter Beck, who um, is still the storyboard artist that I worked with on all those projects. Uh, and uh, Maya is there and, you know, Greta Lee is there. And, um, you know, so is Macaulay Culkin. And, and it's, uh, you know, so I see sort of like aspects of what that style was going to be of this sort of Russian doll style in a way. Um, and then I just remember, you know, I'm so heavily storyboarded. I'm like this bizarre, I'm basically just made up of like my, if you actually take my blood, it's just, um, it's just images of movies and, and uh, nicotine. And, uh, you know, so they finally have like a place to go. Uh, and I've just been cataloging from just like years at the, the film forum and, I mean, I really, I, I love the movies. Uh, and so, yeah. And then I guess I was doing the same thing with Aquafina and High Fidelity and Trill. And oftentimes they were looking at me like, why are you so prepared for this? This is a bad idea. And I'd be explaining to them Dolly Zooms and all this kind of stuff. And like Orange is the New Black. And Genji is just such a, she is so kind to me that she would like let me do these things, you know, on the show. And, um, I mean, uh, I love Jen. She was the one that was just like, God, can you just, you know, just, uh, you know, just accept that you're going to, you know, do this uh, show again this season. And she came and watched them all down. And I don't know. It was, uh, but in season two, I do think that I was, I mean, the funny thing was actually there was this, uh, you know, Kevin Bray directed this episode of uh, Loot for, you know, um, 
this new Maya show. And then because of the uh, schedule, I had to, uh, we lost him for a day because of a COVID push. And I, I came in and I kind of, you know, moonlighted for a couple of days and I was like, oh my God, you know, without the sort of being on camera or like all those things. And I just the dream that is directing and being on set with Maya and kind of like moving through that space. It's, you know, I'm uh, very happy there. It makes me really want to do a feature, but in, in season two, I guess, yeah, I was just incredibly prepped. Alex Bono is a beautiful, beautiful partner that I had this year. I just, I can't say enough about how incredible he was. And um, I guess he really was like, we were able to get to the end of an idea. You know, I, I, he uh, would just, uh, him and also Ula Pantinkos, our, our cinematographer, they would really, they kept sort of pushing me. You know what I mean? Like I would, I would say, okay, well, this is um, whatever, just even, e you know, easy stuff. This is a persona shot or whatever. And uh, you kind of see that with, uh, with Chloe a lot in uh, episode three, you know, whether it's like leaning, you know, the heads on each other and in the padded cell is really, it's like the poster or, you know, the hand on the screen and crazy Eddie, like very basic stuff like that. And, and I was just sort of be, you know, pitching them constantly and they would say, uh, no, 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 we're doing it. We're doing it. You know, like it was, I think because there had been this, um, sort of like proof of concept in season one, there was this encouragement to kind of keep going in season two. They did kill one of the ideas, which was the uh, don't look now shot of on the slide projector instead of like blood spreading out, you know, and like Donald Sutherland is like, I love Nick Rogue. And and I was like, no, it'll be ash. The ash will burn the uh, the slide and we'll kind of get a shot of the ash burning the slide just like don't look now. And I was like, this is way too much time and money for nothing. Uh, so we killed it. But we did do all those sort of like, wide angles and three to kind of, you know, get really close and kind of give you that Terry Gilliam experience of that sort of distortion and just so many things along the way, all the, you know, Dutches and Touch of Evil and Five and um, all these kind of top shots and all these, you know, ideas and these Midnight Cowboy, you know, palettes and King of Comedy palettes. I mean, we were just going off. We had this great colorist, Greg Fisher, who got, who's incredible. I mean, it really... Uh, it just, um, you know, I think also because Alex comes from a uh, long history, he was a DP at SNL for, you know, decades. And then, of course, I know him through Fred and Doc Now. And, you know, Ula is so extraordinary that I think there was this sense of like nothing, no idea, sort of um, impossible, kind of like we can make those shots. So we just uh, went for it and there's no turning back now. And another personal thing that's in the season that anyone who follows you on social media already knew is Nadia's extreme love of both Peter Falk and Columbo. Um, I'm curious, when the Ryan Johnson show that you mentioned a couple times uh, was first floated, a lot of people said, okay, this is finally Natasha getting to do her Columbo. Is it materializing that way? Is that how you look at it in your mind to any degree? It's not, not how I look at it. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> You know, Ryan, Ryan will speak to it. And uh, I would say that we're having a really, a really nice time. You know, we start shooting, I think, in uh, 10 days. Uh, and uh, it's it's really pretty cool. I, I, I just adore Ryan. I mean, what a clean genius. He is a real, you know, precision master. And he's also, a, you know, he's he's like a Hitchcock, but cool. Uh, <laughs> and, 
You know, which a lot of people said about Hitchcock, uh, you know, not the coolest guy in town, they would say. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, I really, I, 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 I love like a, you know, I also with, uh, Ryan, I can only make it to like a Thursday crossword, but Ryan can crush a Friday and a Saturday. No problem. Like while he's multitasking. So, I mean, that guy really, really knows his stuff. And, you know, it's certainly going to be our California split, if nothing else. <laughs> Um, I, I just had to ask because I'm a big fan of, um, but I'm the, the movie, but I'm a cheerleader. And obviously you've done a lot of great stuff for, uh, for the LGBTQ community, but um, have you seen the video for uh, Muna's Silk Chiffon? And what did you think of it? Muna's Silk Chiffon. It's a, the, it's um, a very queer band and they, the, vid the video for the song is literally a tribute to, but I'm a cheerleader. Wasn't that some other girl, a pop star? Like Phoebe Bridgers? She's in it, yeah. Same band. Yeah, same one. I that's have a, that's a song. Amy Babbitt sent it to me and Claire Duvall. So, yes, I think this is great. Now, that's a good music video. Uh, I would say music videos that are not tributes to But I'm a Cheerleader suck. I'm not afraid to say it. <laughs> and so, you know, other, other bands should get it together. Enough with the ideas. Just make them all But I'm a Cheerleader. I, I, I love that movie, and I would say it really... Uh, it maybe did start that, like, spark that idea in me of, you know, we talk a lot about um, sort of like these ideas, like, you know, everything becomes sort of like a platitude and a catchphrase and a hashtag, you know, representation matters or something, right? But, you know, back of that, there is a real, um, you know, like sort of like a, a spiritual truth there or a principle, you know, like a principle means it's mathematic. It's like one plus one equals two, you know, like there is a a very real thing that happens. And I remember that, you know, Clea and I who are still, you know, best friends and uh, Clea's off doing the Tegan and Sarah show right now in, in Calgary. Um, Craig Mazin is there too. So it's a real hot scene going on in Calgary right now. Uh, if anybody wants to, you know, get out there uh, and um, spend some fruit baskets or whatever. Uh, and so Clea and I, you know, have remained, you know, obviously so close over the years. It's, it's really exciting to be in this new era together where we make stuff, you know? Um, and, but I remember we'd be walking around, we were walking around Utah during like Sundance for what I'm a cheerleader. And these kids came up to us and, you know, like they were just like, you know, crying and they had snuck into the theater to see, but I'm a cheerleader. And they were like, you know, thank you. Like, I, you know, we don't have anything like this out here. And, I think it really, like, I know it stuck with both of us because we talk about it a lot privately. Like when we're trying to kind of, you know, if we've had a hard day of like, we both really live in the world of like, you know, budgets and studios and stuff like that now. And we sort of lean on each other, you know, as, uh, you know, sisters really. And it's a very like strong thing to remember, you know, that like there are real, like, you know, human beings who are impacted by this kind of, visibility and and um so anyway i just i just love that movie and i love that you know we all have it together and melanie linsky who i adore and and rupaul i mean it's a very like such a special special movie i one of these days i i really wonder if there's another a version of that especially now with like bills like the don't say gay in florida and and other and other states that are popping up more where if there's something that that can be done that I don't know, that maybe sheds a light on, on a new way of seeing this community and, and that struggle. 
but with a comedic lens, of course, because, but I'm a cheerleader is just a perfect, uh, perfect yeah, I mean, the crazy thing, it's like when we talk about, you know, sort of, you know, heaviness in movies or something, it's like, you know, I mean, it's, you know, real, like heavy is the idea that there is like such a thing exists as a conversion camp. And, you know, real heavy is the idea that conversations, I remember this is what, like 20 years ago, and that it was like a big deal to, you know, have a gay movie, like, how is it, any of it still sort of like, you know, a big deal in the sense that like, how does anybody think that they have any right to tell anybody else how to live in this life is so deeply insane and disturbing that these continue to be conversations that we have to have around, you know, um, equality or that there's, you know, so much of, I think, uh, what I'm, you know, curious about with Nadia and Alan is, you know, this idea that like society gets to sort of comment on our experiences or something, or that, you know, there's, um, this instinct for like a, a, a negative self-talking, self-criticizing mind that's out to get me. Right. And that is, uh, not self-imposed. It's sort of based on societal ideas of saying like, Hey, 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 we'd really like you to line up with this very basic bitch shit that is God awful. And anything that deviates from that is, some, you know, so I, I find it very strange that, you know, essentially like those places still exist is really like, you know, the idea of a conversion camp, one would think only exists in like utter um, fiction. And yet the idea that it's, you know, grounded in this reality is, uh, you know, remains harrowing 20 years later. But certainly, yeah, it would be great to see um, to see another movie kind of address that. Um, well, thank you for humoring me with the, um, and talking about that. But, you know, we do have to wrap. But um, we always wrap with the same question here. What have you been watching and enjoying? I don't know. I mean, shows I like. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Dennis Franz, Sipowitz, uh, <laughs> NYPD Blue. So I love him. What a hunk. Uh, I would say that's something I Google often is what he's up to. And it seems to be oil painting. Uh, and so I'm like glad to hear that. And uh, I just, I do love Dennis Franz. And hopefully if there's one thing we've gathered from, you know, this conversation or the season, it's, it's that. Uh, <laughs> Wait, Den Dennis Franz or Peter Falk? Choose one. Oh, this oh, is fuck, Mary, kill Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh my God. That is a real Sophie's choice, man. Uh, I don't, honestly, I mean, what are you talking, for life or one night? However you wish to interpret the question. <laughs> honestly, I'm going to go with Falk. I'm going to go with Falk. I might even, uh, deep, I just might pull Ben Gazzara from the ether and it, I have them both hang out and I'll be like, I'll see you guys after the show. Uh, so <laughs> that might be the scene. Um, but yeah, these are, these are the big questions. And uh yeah. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Natasha. Okay, Thanks, Natasha. Thank so much. Great to talk to you guys. Season two of Russian Doll is now on Netflix. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. 
Among this week's major new launches, David Simon returns to HBO with We Own This City, as the cable network also brings Barry back for another season. You heard our interview last week with Steve Yaki and Natalie Chaidez about season two of The Flight Attendant, which returned Thursday on HBO Max for, for its second season. Apple courts Lakers fans with They Call Me Magic, which is executive produced with the participation of Magic Johnson. Amazon debuts A Very British Scandal. And Showtime launches The Man Who Fell to Earth. Dan, lots to choose from this week. Oh, God. So much, so much, so much television. I truly do not know what to do with all of it. There are definitely things that are coming out in the next few days that I haven't gotten to yet. And as the kids at home know, I get to everything. So I have no opinion yet on, on Stars' star-studded gaslit. I haven't had a chance to watch it. There's just too much stuff. Uh, several people on Twitter noted that last week's podcast didn't include a review of Flight Attendant. It was not. It was an oversight. We, it was it was totally an oversight. There were 15 things that I was reviewing last week, and that's how it goes. Um, I, I think that the new season is is really solid, and I think it's really solid in interesting ways because I don't know that this one, like Russian Doll, I thought really needed a second season. I, I thought that. It does a pretty good job of justifying why the story is continuing. Uh, to me, the major appeal of the first season was how great Kaylee Cuoco was. I think that the change to the memory palace dynamic featuring multiple versions of Kaylee Cuoco's character, I think it gives her much, much more to do. And she had an awful lot to do last season. So I think that this is possibly a better showcase and a better performance from Kaylee Cuoco than the first season, which was already a career redefining performance slash showcase. So yeah, those are, th that's my basic thought on, uh, on flight attendant. Sometimes it feels like they're reaching a little hard to get components from the first season in. But for example, I think Zosha Mamet is so hilarious to me that, uh, that I am happy to have her back, even if you occasionally have to contrive to come up with reasons. So, okay, many, many things to talk about this week. Where do I want to start? How do I want to categorize them? Let's go with via network, because HBO has a couple big premieres. Um, up first is the return of Barry for a third season. Alec Berg and Bill Hader's comedy has been gone for three years now. It's hard to keep track of the shows that have been gone for three years or four years. And I've seen six episodes. And the primary thing I would say is I'm glad to have Barry back. So it's yet another one of those shows, a little bit like Atlanta a couple of months ago. I had missed Barry. I was struck watching these new episodes, how little I remembered of the actual concrete plot that was taking place last season. So I had to go back and I rewatched much of the second half of the season. And I really, really enjoyed rewatching the second half of the season. I pretty much watched from Ronnie Lilly on and Ronnie Lilly is the show's kind of pinnacle episode, I would say. Uh, but I, but I am struck by the fact that there's a lot of stuff happening on the show that I kind of ignore and accept because I like watching Bill Hader. I like watching Stephen Root. I like watching uh, former podcast guest Henry Winkler. I like watching so many of the people. And if I left out Sarah Goldberg, I have to say she is so great in these new episodes. Um, it, it hasn't suddenly become her show. 
but she is wonderful. And she has, I would say she is central to many of my favorite moments this season because her character, Sally, uh, has a lot of things happening. And she <laughs> has a lot of things happening because in whatever the tiny gap was between seasons, she landed herself as TV show on a streaming service. And so if you're a fan of uh, this podcast and you've heard the various things we've ranted about over the past five years about, I don't know, uh, algorithms and random cancellations and all of that, there's a lot of humor tied to that. There, there continue to be the things like the drug war between the Bolivians and the Chechens, which I care about exclusively because it's the reason to have uh, Anthony Kerrigan's Noho Hank on the show, and I want to have him on the show. Therefore, I accept that I don't care about a drug war between the Bolivians and the Chechens, but I like having him around. I'm not sure that the first six episodes have a Ronnie Lilly level episode, but Hader and Berg, who direct so far all of the episodes this season, are getting really, really good at comedy that is action-driven. And that was a whole episode that was, um, our friend Alan Sepinwall has called it kind of Looney Tunesy uh, style violence slash comedy. And yeah, and I think there's a lot of that this season as well. Uh, there are some stunt things in the last couple episodes of The Six I've seen that are just totally top-notch. And then there are some extremely funny things. There's some great guest stars. Everybody's great. Yay, Barry, coming back this Sunday. Uh, on Monday, HBO will premiere We Own This City, which was created by David Simon and George Pelicanos. And they are, of course, veterans of The Wire, creator of The Wire in David Simon's case. And it is based on a piece of journalism by Justin Fenton, who was a reporter at the Baltimore Sun. And it focuses on a real-life Baltimore Police Department scandal. And it is very much designed to be the wire adjacent. That is kind of how it functions. It is, we've seen the fictionalized version of the story of the failure of the drug war and the struggles of urban policing. Here is something that is both real, but also very much like the fictionalized version. Part of the fun of the show is the ridiculous volume of the wire stars and co-stars who pop up in both important roles. You have Jamie Hector, for example, as a homicide detective, but also tons of little one-off, hey, look, it's that guy from The Wire, or, oh my goodness, is that one of the kids from season four all grown up? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, there's, there's structural weirdness to the show because it is based around a character played by John Bernthal and his transition over 17-ish years from a wide-eyed rookie cop to <laughs> a cop who was presented as the most corrupt cop in Baltimore history, whether or not that was just the way the narrative went or truth, something else. So there's a lot of jumping around in time, and that's not really the thing that David Simon does best as a storyteller. And here it's at times extremely cumbersome. There's also a lot of repetition of the various themes that he likes to repeat. It's, you know, he, he's got his things, and it happens that I, I happen to agree with his things when it comes to failures of policing, institutional failures with government, uh, lack of compassion for, well, humans, and how that gets caught up in the drug war and caught up in policing, etc. I agree with those things. There's just a lot of repetition of them. Uh, Treat Williams, who's 
featured not insignificantly in the trailer for the show, doesn't appear in the show until the fifth episode. He's got two scenes where he basically repeats the theme of the show in monologue form. It's it's not terrific writing, but it's very good in terms of exploring dogma. Um, great performances. John Bernthal is wonderful. Josh Charles is another of the uh, evil cops, is really, really good. Really, everyone here is fantastic. And, uh, you know, it, look, it, it puts itself out there as being next to the wire. And you put yourself out there as being next to the wire, you're going to have to be compared to the wire, and nothing is as good as the wire. So that's just the reality of the situation. And this is not, it's very solid. Don't think of it as being as good as the wire, because if you do, you're going to be very disappointed. Uh, speaking of comparisons that aren't necessarily always for the best, Amazon is premiering a very British scandal, which is not a sequel to and not exactly a anthological extension of a very English scandal, which premiered a couple of years ago and was written by TV's top five guest uh, Russell T. Davies and directed by Stephen Freer. And it featured these wonderful performances from Hugh Grant and Ben Wishaw that were very grounded, very emotional, and also extremely, extremely funny. The new season, which was created by Sarah Phelps, is not particularly funny. Uh, the new season is, for the record, a very British scandal, not to be confused with a very English scandal, not to be confused with Anatomy of a Scandal, which premiered last week on Netflix, because, oh dear God, there's too much TV and everything is being confused with everything else. And not to be confused with ABC Scandal, which is not now streaming on Hulu. Not to be confused with that either. Yeah, way, way too much chaos. The story is the story of the relationship slash marriage and then um, very, very, very public and very, very acrimonious divorce between uh, the Duke and Duchess of Argyle. Um, in the 19, it was 1963, their divorce, but you know, their their relationship, which began when they were both married to other people, produced scandal as well. But the divorce particularly produced scandal because there was lots of talk about infidelity, charges including forgery were thrown up. And then because it was the 1960s, there were also dirty, dirty Polaroids that were a key piece of the trial. Uh, the cast is led by Paul Bettany and Claire Foy and they're both great, and they are the reason to watch this. It is only three hours. It does not have anywhere near the sense of humor that the first season or that the English scandal season did. And I think that does probably drain the characters of some of their humanity. They they end up ultimately being two really, really horrible people who are really, really horrible for each other and then do horrible things to each other, which is very watchable. Sometimes a little bit depressing, sometimes a little bit sad. Mostly you're just enjoying watching Claire Foy and Paul Bettany, which perfectly acceptable to me. Uh, continuing, I mentioned earlier, They Call Me Magic on Apple TV+. Plus. It is a four-hour documentary about Magic Johnson featuring, as Leslie mentioned earlier, Magic Johnson's participation extensively. And the biggest problem with the documentary is... Magic Johnson, because Magic Johnson has the things he wants to talk about and the things he doesn't want to talk about. And so Magic Johnson, totally happy to talk about all the points he scored in a high school game when he was 15. Totally happy to talk about his rivalry with Larry Bird. 
Uh, but when it gets to talking about things that are more prickly and problematic or more dramatically interesting, he either is under the impression that he gave interviews already about these things or that he doesn't want to talk about them. So obviously his HIV diagnosis is extraordinarily important, both in a historical sense, but in a sense of, you know, structuring a documentary. And it's very important here. And the change between the magic who is specific and full of memories and details and the guy who really just doesn't want to talk about HIV anymore, obviously. It's a very big change. And there are a lot of places, especially in the second two hours, where you just feel that magic is not wanting to talk about things. And sometimes it's really, really silly things. So I want to hear Magic Johnson talking about the magic hour, his uh, his horrible Fox late night show that bombed and was much maligned and mocked. And you have Jimmy Kimmel coming on and talking about it as the worst show ever. Magic doesn't say a damn word about that. Uh, you have both Isaiah Thomas and Magic Johnson as talking heads here. But boy, if you go and research the complications in what was formerly a friendship between them, anything that's complicated, they don't want to discuss. Um, you would have no idea watching this documentary that Magic had a failed tenure as coach of the Lakers. You would have no idea that he had a, let's just say, mixed bag run as uh, chief, uh, whatever he was. He was he ran the team, basically, president of basketball operations, whatever it was. Doesn't get mentioned because it wants to talk about Magic, the businessman. It It's a little annoying for a documentary that is this long and four hours feels like way too long. Uh, to be as evasive and underwhelming on key issues as this one is. So not necessarily necessary. And finally, uh, chance to plug another DB's top five favorite. Uh, Showtime is premiering The Man Who Fell to Earth on Sunday. That is co-created by actually two TV's top five former guests. It is created by Jenny Lumet and by Alex Kurtzman. Leslie, when did we have those two wonderful people on? Well, Jenny Lumet joined us in February 2021 in episode 107. It's one of my all-time favorite interviews that we've done on the show. And Alex Kurtzman was just before that, episode 90 from October 2020. He's also great. Indeed. So this is obviously an extension of the uh, Nicholas Redd film with David Bowie, and that was an adaptation of the Walter Tevis novel. I, I would say... For all intents and purposes, you do not need to have seen the movie or read the book. I, you know, yes, there are definitely layers that are added if you know things, but I would say not really in any way necessary because the basic premise is uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor plays an alien who arrives on Earth because his planet is dying and he needs the help of a scientist played by Naomi Harris to develop technology that will allow him to save his planet, basically. So they go on kind of an extended road trip, for want of a better word, to help develop the technology that he needs to save his planet and maybe save our own planet. And it's full of, it is full of interesting meditations on outsider status. There are many, many references to how uh, he is effectively an immigrant, how he is an alien in the 
legal, illegal alien sense as well. And it ties into several major characters and it's repeated enough times that you will surely get it. And there are meditations on what it means to be human and what it means to be human and a steward of a planet. And that stuff's all interesting. What's more interesting though, is that the performances here are, are wonderful. That uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor is so good here in a world in which there was less television. I think we would be unquestionably talking about him as an Emmy contender. Um, I think we still absolutely could because I think he is he is worthy. The thing I like most, honestly, is that he's hilarious. And I don't know that I had known that Chiwetel Ejiofor was hilarious, but he absolutely totally is. And he's doing a lot of really fun physical comedy things that are sometimes very, very broad, sometimes very subtle, sometimes silly, and sometimes the show is kind of on the same wavelength as him, and it's very funny. So you have supporting performances from Rob Delaney, who is extremely funny. You have supporting performances from Sonia Cassidy, who was one of my favorites from Lodge 49. She's great. Sometimes, though, it's being a, a sci-fi thriller, and maybe it's a little bit less interesting in that respect. But really, I just... Uh, Naomi Harris, also just great. Uh, Clark Peters, who plays her father, terrific. Mostly, I was enjoying watching the performances and being amused by some of the things that some of these actors were getting to do. The actual progression of the plot, eh, you know, it's it's interesting, exactly interesting enough to keep me going. Maybe not necessarily blown away. Um, so yeah, that is that is a lot of a lot of television. Uh, as a little recap, Barry is absolutely the best thing I've talked about on this podcast. No question about that. It's back on Sunday. It is fantastic. Yay, Barry. I liked We Own This City on HBO. Uh, you know, it's Know the Wire, but what is? I liked Flight Attendant on HBO Max. Kaylee Cuoco, fantastic. Very British scandal. Much more serious and dour than the first season, but Claire Foy and Paul Bettany, absolutely good. I finally got tired of They Call Me Magic on Apple TV+. Plus. If you're a fan, sure, watch. But it's, you know, it, it's not as good as the Michael Jordan 30 for 30 on ESPN. It's not as good as a lot of things. It's, in fact, by the end, I would say, a rather significant disappointment for me. Um, and Man Who Fell to Earth, watch it for the performances because the performances are thoroughly worth watching. Um, and again, you don't need to watch the David Bowie movie, but you certainly could because it's a really, really good movie. I haven't read the book, but Walter Tevis is a great writer, so maybe that's true as well. So, yes, lots of TV, and I'll be watching Gaslit on Sunday with everybody else because I have no clue. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews to stay tuned for all reviews from THR's fabulous roster of TV critics. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. A programming reminder, be sure to tune in Tuesday at 11 p.m. Pacific after the Better Things finale for our Showrunner Spotlight special with Pamela Adlon. Subscribers get it early at 11 p.m. Non-subscribers can look for Dan's story that will post Wednesday morning on THR.com. So subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. 
Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to hear what's working, what isn't working, what things we forgot to review, etc., etc. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until Tuesday's very special episode, Leslie. Until Tuesday, Dan. <laughs>